1: So, what's
0: trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Welcome back to Trending. It's so great to be with you. We're here in this Advent season. We're going to be discussing later on why an Advent wreath during Advent. We're covering Advent content all season long as I've mentioned. It's my favorite liturgical season. Also, I want to hear your guesses as to when baby number two is coming. I'm 37 weeks today. You know i had been struggling with preterm labor, and they just wanted to make sure that she made it till today. So I'll share a little more details about that, diving into some tips and tricks for during pregnancy. I'd love to hear yours. Numbers 1-888-914-9149. Maybe you have a question today for my guest. Are you struggling with navigating your child, everything from anxiety that your child might be experiencing to just trying to wrap your head around the different phases and developmentally uh, that they're going through. Well, my guest today is Erica Komazar. Erica Komazar is a psychoanalyst, a parent coach, and an author We've talked about her book, Being There, Prioritizing the First Three Years uh, for Moms and how important we are as moms, the place we uh, play in our children's lives. And so today we're going to dive into the topic of understanding and embracing the phases, three phases that she lays out during the adolescence, understanding what's happening with brain development and emotion. And we'll also talk about helping your children through anxiety. If you have a question for psychoanalyst Erica Komazar, the number is one 888-914-9149. Erica, welcome back to Trending. Thank you for having me. Let's dive into this topic of the three phases of adolescence and the adventure of walking through and understanding what's going on with your child uh, and understanding the, the boundaries and the challenges that they experience in these three phases. Can you lay them out for us?
1: Well, I mean, first I want to say that adolescence is what we call the second critical window of brain development, the first being zero to three, the second being nine to 25. Most people don't understand that adolescence starts earlier and ends later than, than previously known. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we know that, that uh, the brain doesn't really stop its development uh, until about 25. Um, and so in that period, there are three phases, as you said. There's early adolescence, which is nine to thirteen. I like to call that the exploration phase. There's middle adolescence, which is fourteen to eighteen. That's the declaration phase. And there's late adolescence, which is nineteen to twenty-five, and that's the confirmation phase. Um, and in this in this period, this critical window of development. Um, we have something called asymmetrical brain development, which really makes adolescents behave in very strange ways, which we never really understood why they behaved strangely. We just knew they behaved strangely. Now because of neuroscience, we know why they behave strangely uh, from a biological perspective. So what we do know is that the two parts of the brain are the ventral striatum and the limbic system, the amygdala are racing ahead in development. And these two parts of the brain are responsible for, the ventral striatum is responsible for, it's the motivational or reward center of the brain. And it basically makes kids more impulsive, makes them more um, novelty seeking, makes them uh, basically have a harder time controlling their emotions. And the amygdala or the limbic system, the amygdala is the threat sensing part of the brain, which controls stress reactions or creates a fight or flight reaction in in us. Um, And what happens with that is um, they tend to be, adolescents tend to be more uh, very sensitive to rejection, sensitive to criticism, sensitive to any threats at all. And so these two parts of the brain are racing forward but the prefrontal cortex or the emotional regulation part of the brain is lagging behind in development and doesn't finish its, its process of development until about 25. So basically, um, you have all, bra- all gas and no brakes on the brain, and that causes adolescents to behave strangely. So you're saying that this sensitivity to rejection as the brain is still developing
0: happens through all three of these phases from the age 9 all the way up until that 25-year-old range when the prefrontal cortex is really developing that full sense of reason uh, with regard to understanding what's happening around him.
1: Yeah, imagine that the brain is vigilant, very vigilant. It's turned on for any threats at all in a very sort of intense way. Um, And those threats could come in the form of insults, criticism, um, anything, any harsh judgment on the part of parents or teachers or their peers. Um, But, yeah, so this part of the brain is not being yet regulated by the emotion. part of the brain, the balancing part of the brain. And so, yeah, things like social media, things like, Mm. um, you know, even taking tests and not doing well and feeling, you know, the, uh, the, the criticism or the judgment of your parents or the teachers or the school or that's felt much more intensely and harshly to an adolescent than it would be to an adult. Interesting. So let's connect this to fight or
0: flight hormones because it's interesting to see how impulsive uh, many young people can be. And again, when we're talking about adolescents. we're talking about all the way up to the age of 25. Um, They're overly stimulated by social media. Um, There's a lot of pressure in terms of academia to perform, to perform well on tests. I was never a good test taker. Uh, Thank the Lord I was homeschooled because it helped with reducing some of that stress for me because there was, you know, modification in terms of not really having tests the traditional way. Uh, And it better prepared me, I think, for when I took tests in college. I wasn't a great test taker, but, you know, I had kind of a little more confidence in terms of how I studied and went into and prepared for those rather than always having that pressure. You know, there's pressure in terms of academia. We mentioned social media, uh, but not to mention just the challenge, Erica, of the culture that young people are living in. Um, So, much so we see this sexual pressure, especially on teenage girls, um, exposure to things that really aren't age appropriate for boys and girls. So tie that into this impulsivity and how fight and flight um, is really kicking in for many kids, and they're making bad
1: decisions in the midst of that. Well, I mean, so what you're really talking about is the fact that kids are living in a much more stressful environment than ever before. I mean, adolescence is stressful just in and of itself, right? So just take normal adolescence from the time that I grew up. I'm almost 60, so in the days that I grew up, there wasn't, the academic pressure was, wasn't was nearly as intense, the competition wasn't nearly as intense, the emphasis on going to the best, the best, the best schools to get the best, the best, the best jobs, it just wasn't, it wasn't as intense. Everything has intensified. Um, and, and if you want to give me, to, for me to give you an example, I live in New York City. And, you know, when I was a little girl, I went to the circus, and it was overstimulating. But you go to the circus now, and everything has gotten louder and brighter, and, and like sensory overload in every way. So, there's more stress on kids than ever before that's coming from the outside and coming from the inside. And when I say two critical windows of brain development, what we're talking about is the fact that stress plays a major role in how the brain develops in those two critical windows. The brain is most susceptible to stress in those two critical windows, one being adolescence, And so we are just not sensitive to how sensitive adolescents are to stress. Let's
0: talk a little bit about that role of stress in these three developmental phases. How can parents be aware Of these developmental windows, you talk about exploration in the age 9 to 13, declaration 14 to 18, and confirmation 19 to 24. What needs or maybe red flags uh, should parents be trying to meet or be aware of?
1: Well, some of the things that I tell parents um, that that come to me for, for help is that, you know, you think because your adolescent seems more independent, that they are more independent. And in truth, there's they're partly more independent, they're trying to be more independent, but they need you more physically and emotionally than they seem to. Um, And so yeah, they don't need you in as intense a way from moment to moment as an infant or a toddler does. But they need you to be there because when And I write this in my book, when the door swings open, and I mean that literally and figuratively, if parents aren't there to help to regulate children's emotions, much in the same way that they did when they were very young, the door will close again and you've lost your opportunity to help them to process their feelings their experiences and their thoughts, which are often overwhelming to them. So parents need to be there as much as possible, physically, as well as emotionally. Um, they need to learn as much as they can about this period of development um, they need to be self-aware meaning we pass down to our children through something called generational transmission we pass down things like anxiety depression addictions um, they need to be able to regulate their own emotions if you as parents can't regulate your own emotions if you have volatile emotions if you lose your temper if you are prone to depression you can cannot model emotional regulation to your children and most importantly they need and i think we just
0: lost eric oh there you are we've got you back eric can you hear Uh, us okay sorry Wonderful. So you were talking about how important it is that parents um, have that integrity in terms of their emo- own emotions and that if they are emotionally distraught, disturbed, unregulated, um, impulsive, if they act out, you know, and, you know, we talk about acting out, but a lot of adults struggle with their own emotional integrity. They don't understand what emotion they're processing. They struggle with through this. So you're talking about how important it is that it starts with the parent modeling to the child how to
1: regulate that emotional environment. It is true. So, you know, if we didn't learn that as adults from our own parents, if our own parents didn't teach us how to regulate our emotions in the very early years. So we learn to regulate our emotions in that first critical window of development, which is zero to three. And if we didn't learn that from our parents, all is not lost. You can learn to regulate your emotions uh, through therapy, therapy, talk therapy, is a very important way that that adults learn to regulate their emotions later on. There's a book written by a colleague of mine, Alan Shore, called The uh, Science and the Art of Psychotherapy, which basically talks about how if you look at brain scans of adults, before they are in talk therapy, and then a year later, after they've been in talk therapy, uh, it actually the architecture of their brain changes. So they are more uh, able to regulate their emotions because the right side of their brain is more active, the social emotional part of their brain is more active. So even as adults, we can learn to regulate our emotions so we can be better parents.
0: Excellent. So you're saying it's important even for parents to consider talk therapy in order to help in guiding their children through these developmental stages. Absolutely. So what are some of the what are some of the red flags, Erica, in, for example, the exploration phase, nine to 13? um, You know, we already mentioned in general they're sensitive to rejection. But what does a child need in this time that we should be fostering as parents?
1: Well, the exploration phase is uh, is is really most significantly marked by the physical changes that children go through. And we know that puberty starts earlier than we thought, you know, ever before. And a lot of it has to do with diet and stress and environmental mm-hmm. factors. Um, but we have girls going into puberty as early as nine, right? Um, and, and so nine to 13, there's all of the hormones are racing. And you know, it's, it's a time of real physical change and, and that causes a lot of, you know, mood changes and mood shifts. Um, and by middle adolescence, um, 14 to 18, kids are really more trying to figure out gender identity, sexual identity. Um, they're not just thinking about um, separating from their parents or physically spending less time with their parents. They're actually trying to figure out who they are as people separate from their parents. So that's why I call it declaration. They're declaring themselves in terms of, as I said, gender and sexual identity, but also just in terms of who they are as separate from their parents. Um, and in this period, it's it's a it's a very difficult period socially. Um, I would say 14 to 18 is the hardest period socially, um, and it's it's that middle school beginning of high school, but sort of middle school to beginning of high school. And it's when kids are the most, um, I would say they're the most under stress socially and in terms of finding their place in, in a group or a tribe. And I say to parents that you you can't survive middle school and 14 to 18 if you don't have friends. And so the kids that are most at risk are the kids who struggle socially, who are awkward socially, who haven't found their tribe, so to speak, because it's your tribe that helps you survive those middle, middle adolescent years. And then you have late adolescence, or 19 to 25, and that's what we call the confirmation stage, and that's when everything gets synthesized, all of your... Um, declarations of the middle years get synthesized or confirmed in those years. So, um, you know, that's, that's a period where it all sort of comes together and you do sort of move towards that feeling more secure and settled in who you are. That's Erica Komazar. She's a psychoanalyst, parent, coach, and
0: author. You can find her at erikakomazar.com. That's erikakomazar.com. I love her book in particular. It's called Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. We actually did an episode on the topic a couple times recently. I'll post a link in the episode notes as well as on social media. Just follow me at timmarie, T-I-M-M, Erie where we're also tagging Erica Komazar. We'll be right back with Erica and we're going to dive into the topic of anxiety, helping your child to navigate anxiety with the increase in anxiety widespread in all ages all the way down to infants. My generation, the millennial generation has been one of the most known generations anxiety but it's from them down it's a challenge today that we need to be able to respond to if you have a question for erica please give us a call 1-888-914-9149 to ask the psychoanalyst a question about parenting you're listening to trending with timery where you can discuss what matters most to you join the conversation 888-914-9149 Anxiety is becoming more prevalent than ever before for young people from external stimuli. Uh, We saw this with my generation, the millennial generation, how anxiety has absolutely ravaged us, but we're seeing it all the way down to young children, young children, toddlers. Uh, Our environments today are overwhelming. Um, Many of us are experiencing overload from the digital world to just the overexposure, often even age-appropriate content, and the challenge in terms of whether or not our relationships have been properly formed from a young age. Uh, It's interesting because we'll hear often about mental health, but one of the conversations we don't hear enough about is that there are often many comorbidities when it comes to mental health preceding various diagnoses. And one of the most common includes anxiety, depression, uh, loneliness, isolation, and they often go untreated. Anxiety being one of them. Today on Trending is Erica Komazar. She's a psychoanalyst, parent coach, and author. Erica, let's talk about what's happening with anxiety and how to help children through this challenging time. What where do we begin?
1: Well, you're right that children and adolescents are really, really at risk and that their mental health is is really rapidly deteriorating. Um, In the United States, one in five kids will have a mental illness uh, before they leave childhood. And, you know, since COVID, anxiety and depression rates have doubled. So during the pandemic, 25% of youth were experiencing depression and 20% experiencing anxiety. So, yeah, it's a real problem. Um, it's definitely a a real, real problem.
0: We were talking about brain development and emotional security earlier. Can you shed a little more light on the role of emotional security and brain development on
1: anxiety for children? So the foundation of mental health for everyone is in the first critical window of brain development because that's when we learn when through attachment security, we learn to feel safe, we learn to feel secure in the world, and we internalize that sense of safety, but we also learn to regulate our emotions. So you could say that what we're seeing in kids and adolescents are disorders of emotional regulation, where they can't keep their emotions from going too high or too low. So think about emotional regulation as the ability to keep your emotions from going too high or too low, whether it's excitement or anger or sadness, um, all of those emotions need regulating. Even excitement needs regulating. And it's through that interaction with our parents in those early years that we learn that emotional regulation. Um, And so just to define, because I think we don't have enough really understanding and definition of what depression and anxiety actually are. Um, you know, we all have depressed moments or anxious moments in life, but when we say depression is a diagnosis or anxiety is a diagnosis, we're talking about preoccupation with losses With depression, it means a preoccupation over past losses. And with anxiety, it's a preoccupation or fear over future losses that haven't occurred and may never occur. Right? So we're talking about loss, um, and we don't often think about our kids and our adolescents as having experienced loss. And so As adults, we need to have a better understanding of what they're experiencing and the losses that they've experienced in their lives. And it really does start very early. Um, I think there's a real emphasis in our society, in modern society, and particularly in America, on our children being independent and self-sufficient and resilient very young. And they're not capable of any of those things. And so, what they're doing is they're creating um, defenses that are not healthy defenses. And those defenses break down later on. When we put our children into daycare situations, or when we put our children, when we separate from our children to go back to work too early, um, it basically leaves our children defenseless and they have to create what I call pathological defenses. Um, and it interrupts that attachment security that lays the foundation down for emotional regulation and a feeling of safety that that keeps you that makes you resilient for the rest of your life. Wow, so
0: what you're focusing on comes back to your book that I absolutely love that we talked about b- before. Being there, why prioritizing motherhood in the first three years matters. What you say this whole time is that all phases of childhood, from the newborn all the way up to the later adolescence, are important for parental presence. And it just changes in different ways. But what you just mentioned is striking and I think startling uh, that there's a loss that can occur for a child when the child does not have his or her needs met in those first few years in particular. Now uh, we when we talked last there was a little, quite a bit of controversy on social media in response to our podcast because a lot of people um, are frustrated by a lot of what is being shared. I know in many ways you, you yourself experienced a little bit of the cancel culture when you released your book uh, some years ago uh, about prioritizing motherhood and tr- trying to prioritize staying home with your children because of this need that the research and all of the anecdotal evidence is pointing to, uh, I think there are two boats here. One boat is, okay, we need to do everything we can to prioritize and be there for our children and making the sacrifices to drop down to one income, having an adaptable work schedule, you know, working part-time, working when the child's asleep or at school. Uh, But the other side of it is making up for the loss that has occurred for a child who's beyond those earlier years. How do you do that?
1: Well, you do it in much the same way that you do it when they're zero to three, which is you have to be there physically and emotionally as much as possible to help regulate their emotions when their emotions are intense. And so, you know, mothers of very small children. Um, it's, it's this moment to moment soothing them when they're in distress. And it isn't the same way with adolescence, meaning when they are as as i said earlier when the door opens and when they are open to talking to you uh when they, they come out of their room literally to grab a snack or to have something to eat or if you're there and you're open for communication with them and you're present, then then you have an opportunity to help them to process their day, and to help them to process what they're thinking and feeling, um, and maybe their losses that they've experienced that day. If you're not there, then they go back into their shell. They, they develop those defenses, what I call defensive independence, and the door closes. And you can't just knock on the door on your terms, in your time frame, and say, here I am, I'm open for business, let's talk, because they're going to go, huh, what, go away. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, being there as much as possible, but also being literate with your own emotions is really critical. If parents are good at expressing them, their their feelings, and a lot of parents didn't grow up in homes where feelings were expressed openly. And things like anger, things like deep sadness, um, in many homes the only emotions you're allowed to express are happy ones. And so if that's the case, then your adolescent isn't gonna have any place to bring these difficult emotions, their deep sadness, their sense of loss, um, their, their, their rage, their anger. Um so so what I do is try to help parents to be more comfortable overall with emotions their own as well as their children's and particularly anger and aggression parents have a very hard time they see it as disrespectful when their children express their anger and aggression but if they cannot bring it to you and you're not calm and and a good listener and if you can't help them process that anger and aggression they'll internalize it and it will turn into depression and potentially anxiety Mm.
0: There are words that are coming to mind as you're talking about this because I think that it's you're saying that we need to be there physically and emotionally to help, you know, when the door opens, when they come, not when our door opens, when their door opens. So that means that one, we have to be there, as you're saying, present and available, but we have to also be aware, alert, uh, social media technology, checking one more email, uh, even trying to clean. You know, I noticed this just because my daughter is a toddler. She's almost two in my window of, you know, her doors opening to me is maybe I'm sitting here trying to get all the dishes in the kitchen done and I miss that window because I might be looking at her and responding, that's not what she needs. She needs, you know, the physical comfort. She needs to need to get down on her level, which we talked a lot about uh, when you were on with us a few weeks ago. Um one of the questions I want to throw out to you, Erica, because you pose such a challenge to parents in a good way. Uh, and it's very, very upsetting for some people because you're saying, okay, you want me to give up my career? Or you want me to be poor and destitute? Um, or a lot of people will throw out this argument, and many people have at me over the last couple of weeks as you and I have been talking here on Trending. Well, you're coming from a position of privilege. And I know not everyone can quit their job. I know not everyone can necessarily even have part-time work per se, but we're talking about an ideal, and I know as people of faith, God really does provide when we pray for this because this is a God-given role that He's given to us. So if you could share a little bit, Erica, about how you did this. You know, you are a psychoanalyst, you're a parent coach, you're an author, you've raised children, and you really did prioritize raising your children, but also balancing coming in and out of the workforce. Can you speak a little bit to that?
1: Well, I mean, first and foremost, I'm a social worker. So I'm a social worker and psychoanalyst. I'm not an MD. I'm not a psychologist. um, And social workers don't make a lot of money. And um, so what I will say is that um, there were a lot of sacrifices. and, And I think Catholicism understands sacrificing. Judaism, I'm Jewish, understands sacrificing. But the idea is that there are a lot of sacrifices uh, related to having children. And in the years that my children were very small, it was it was a planned thing. My husband and I talked about these things before we had children and how important it was to have one parent present for those children in those very early years as much as possible. No parent can be there All the time. Parents need breaks. They need to care for themselves. Uh, Even if it's going to the gym and taking care of their bodies or going and, and meeting with a friend, you need to have you need to be able to care for yourself. But the idea of being as present as possible in those early years is something I planned with my husband. And my husband was on board, and I never would have married him had he not been the kind of person that was on board. So that was really critical, that it was planned. Mm -hmm. Um, And then after that, the sacrifices. I mean, we really gave up a lot in those years. Uh, Financially, we struggled a lot, but it was worth the sacrifice. I think it's hard for people to think about sacrificing their own interests and desires um, and material comfort, even if it's a short period of time. You know, we know that this is such a short, small window. Um, But I think it's really hard for people today to really think about the kind of sacrifice that I'm talking about.
0: And I appreciate that you talked first about having your spouse be on board and that you said you would not have married your spouse. And it makes me think back to college before my husband and I ever dated. And we were driving in the car one day and we were talking about, you know, what we want to do after college. And I said, Well, I really want to be a mom. I want to be a mom. And he was so taken aback by that. He had. Never heard a woman say that before, and I said, you know, yeah, you know, I was involved in ministry work at the time, and I said, you know, there are a lot of great things that I would love to do, but I want to be a mom and be present to my kids, and he was just astounded. I've never heard someone say that before, and he was speechless, and he'll bring it up over and over again since then, and it was something we had talked about beforehand, and I've shared before, and I think it's important because I'm sure you maybe had opportunities as well when I was single, when I was in the marriage you know, direction, I had awesome job offers that at times came my way, but they were ones that I knew would not be conducive with the type of lifestyle I wanted to have in raising children and being fully present. And you said it's a choice, it's a sacrifice, and it's difficult financially. You know, I've seen Erica think such as, you know, I'm okay with shopping at thrift stores. That's fine. That's normal. Um, I also trust God will provide when we make these choices because this is the blueprint for how he wants us to raise our families. And we can do things more simply. Uh, How do we wrap, I think, especially for women, how can we wrap our minds around shifting into that mindset when we think that our worth is so focused on career or we're focused on what people will think we do or don't have in terms of material goods?
1: Well, I mean, I think of it sort of like a a depression mentality. And I don't mean depression, the clinical diagnosis, I mean depression, uh, the the big depression, which is that we get into a mentality as women that if we don't do it now, we'll never do it. It's sort of like when I treat someone with an eating disorder, Mm -hmm. they feel like this is the last piece of chocolate cake that they'll ever eat. And so part of my role as a therapist with someone with bulimia or an eating disorder is to help them to understand that there are many pieces of chocolate cake coming their way in life. And this is the not, not the last piece of chocolate cake. And I think there's a sort of um, forced urgency to kind of gobble up everything as quickly as possible, because if you don't eat it now, you're never going to eat again, like a almost a predator response, binging on. And and what I say to to, to the young women that I work with is, You know, if we all live till 120, like Moses, in your generation, certainly with the medical technology and the way things are moving, you probably are all going to live till 120. You have so many years to define yourself as a professional. You have very, very, very few years to set that foundation down for the mental health of your child for life. And if you think of it in that perspective, um, then it's not as scary because I do think that as a society we scare women into believing that if they don't, you know, race to the finish line now, that it will never happen for them. And I can say I'm a good example. I had a very, very, very small uh, toe in my in my profession when I was raising children. I did keep my toe in my profession. I took six months off with each child. And then I saw about an hour and a half of patients a day that was two patients a day, five days a week and that was my way of staying somewhat in my profession but um, but that was it and I did that for mm-hmm. ten years, eleven years uh, until my kids were out of those those you know that that early critical window and then I did really slowly incrementally increase my practice, but still kept it very minimal. So I could be there when they came home from school, so I could pick them up at the end of the day from school. So I think it was, it was an understanding that life is long and you can do everything in life. You just can't do it all at the same time if you want to do it all well.
0: Mm-hmm. And understanding how important and special you are to that little kid right in front of you, that as much as we try to find value and success and pat ourselves on the back, that great value that those children will never forget. And again, this whole segment was about helping your children through anxiety, but little did we realize it was really about the choices we're making as parents. And the massive sacrifice we are called to and understanding the blueprint for how God created us. You know, you, you're Jewish, Erica, we're Catholic and kind of having this understanding that all of the research, all of the psychology is pointing to this is what is the most effective for children and it's how God designed um, children and the family to be and it makes really difficult sacrifices, but God provides. Erica, thank you so much for your candidness and uh, helping us to navigate these difficult choices, but really understanding the importance of development and anxiety for our children and meeting those needs from day one or meeting them now if maybe there's a little bit of a making up and loss that's occurred for your child. You can find Erica Comazar at com. That's E-R-I-C-A-K-O-M-I-S-A-R.com. Post a link to that on social media, as well as in the episode notes. Find them at relevantradio.com forward slash trending or wherever you catch your podcast. And I'm posting a link to her book, Why Prioritizing Mother in the First Three Years Matters. Uh, Please pick this book up. It's an excellent resource and it's eye-opening for us, especially as women. Maybe the man you're married to, a person you might want to marry one day. Mm That's Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silent and Advent Hymn for us to ponder. If you haven't added it to your Advent list yet that you have for your playlist for listening to a little more traditional Advent uh, music to prepare yourself for Uh, The coming of Christ at Christmas. I love this song because it really helps us if you listen to the lyrics, maybe read them. It prepares us for the descent of Christ, which has already occurred. You know, we have that nine months of gestation. He's present in our lady, but the world doesn't know him yet. And then the angels are saying glory to God in the highest at the coming of Christ at the birth of Christ at Christmas. And so let all mortal flesh keep silent. Kind of takes us into this silent preparation that silence before the birth of the child, of the Christ child. So we'll talk a little bit in just a moment about why an Advent wreath and the symbols of the Advent wreath, as well as the tips and tricks during pregnancy. I have some questions to throw out to you. Uh, Mary from Illinois is on the line. She had a question as we were talking about child anxiety and developmental phases. Mary, welcome to Trending. What's your question today?
2: Uh, Yes, thank you. I really enjoy your show. Um, And I had a question. Um, One of my children... um, he is in college now, and he started college during COVID, um, and back to senior year was during COVID. Um, and so during that time, he's kind of lost touch with some of his friends. He never had like a huge friend friend group, but he had a few good friends, but they've kind of gone their different ways now in college. Um, and I'm just, you know, he's a great kid. He's, you know, he's getting a 4.0 in a really difficult major, Um, which we always tell him, just do your best. We don't, we're not, we don't put pressure on him that way, but he's very driven himself. Um, And he's, so, I mean, he's got so much, so much going for him, but he's, he's very, lately he's been expressing how he's lonely and just wishes he had more friends. And Mm -hmm. I just don't know how to help him with that. And I don't, I don't know if people, I think there are probably other people in this situation due to COVID and also in this age group where you know, people, young people are kind of more plugged in like online and they are in person a lot of times. And right. I just want mm-hmm. to know how I can help him because he's, like I said, he's a great kid and he's a great young man and so much to offer. And I just feel sad that he's he's lonely and I, that's something I can't really help yeah. him with personally. So I was wondering if the doctor has any, or the psychologist has any tips on this.
0: We don't have um, her with us. Erica Kumasar is gone, but I can relate to this. And I did want to take this question, even though she wasn't with us, because I struggled with friendships in um, high school and in college. And just feeling isolated, you know, had a lot of breaking up in terms of friends groups in that high school. And then in college, it, it was just, it's a lonely time. And you add COVID and the interruption, especially if you were in the middle of school, it just makes it really difficult. Plus the online communication, the lack of strong face-to-face. I, I get it. Um, and in I would really say, especially because the college age, there's so many great opportunities, whether at his college, whether he's at a junior college or a university or other local colleges, this is a really good time to tap into other good schools nearby, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a Catholic school. It could be a school with a really great Newman Center or Newman Club. It could be a school with some really great clubs that your son could fit into. Um, it could be anything, you know, I was just talking to my mom about this with my sister as well because she's, you know, in the that phase where you know we need to meet more people. And it could be clubs, you know, maybe you're into music, maybe you're into sports. You don't have to play for a sports team, but you can play in a sports club that plays soccer, you know, once a week and they're all just getting together and have that common interest. And there are local, you know, Christian and Catholic schools that you can look into for programs such as that. Um but not being afraid to ba- branch out because I have seen this especially in those college years. Where there are other schools and other groups where you can tap into. A huge resource for me, and I want to throw this out there for any college age or young adult individual, it's Eagle Eye Ministries. I'm pulling up the website now, um, Eagle Eye Ministries, I think.com. I know that. Um, we'll grab that right now and post it on social media as well as in the episode notes. But Eagle Eye Ministries is a program specifically designed um, by the Religious Order of the Community of St. John, and they do a lot of outdoor excursions, like three-day or even two-week-long Uh, Programs where they take um, the youth anywhere from 18 all the way up to about 35 years of age, and you go backpacking, hiking, various excursions and programs, but you have mass every day and adoration. And I've always found this to be a really good um, life force for me, especially in college where maybe I was feeling a little disconnected, but it was an opportunity to connect with my faith, but also other. Really well formed and like minded individuals who are seeking Christ. And it gives you an idea for the types of friendships and relationships that you'd like to form, or even ideas for how to take a similar program back into your community. I know that's something I really did in college. Even going to a small Catholic university, I wanted more. You know, I started programs and groups. And, you know, I think just being willing to start something small and having one other person that you can invite or Maybe you don't even know that you can invite them to participate. Maybe it's, you know, praying in front of the abortion clinic, if that's something you're into, or playing soccer. I started a soccer club. I don't know anything about soccer. I said, hey, I want to play soccer once a week, and I started getting people together, and next thing you know, I think we had like 30 to 40 people playing soccer once a week. Uh, You can create things to make friends, and you don't have to be the best at doing something, and I think sometimes that's a little reminder of, like, you don't have to be an expert to create something. Uh, to bring a handful of people together, because usually that confidence isn't there for everyone else either. So, great question, Mary. Prayers for your son as he navigates and builds up those friendships, and you support and encourage him on that. You're listening to Trending with Tim Murray here on Relevant Radio. We're going to talk about why an Advent wreath, and, well, I want you to vote. You have to go and vote on my social media um, for When you think baby girl number two is coming, I threw that up there. Just follow me at Timmery, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. I I know there have been a lot of questions about tips and tricks during pregnancy. We're running out of time, so we're going to talk about that a little bit later here on Trending this week. But I want to talk about the Advent wreath today. Um, It's a tradition that many of us have incorporated into our homes. Maybe you grew up with it, but didn't always really know what it marked other than becoming or coming one week closer uh, to Christmas and the excitement and anticipation that is fostered by that Advent wreath. So each week here on Trending, we're talking about the themes of each of the candles and what those candles represent. So for example, if you have your Advent wreath lit around your table, this week is the theme of hope. and We talked about that yesterday on the episode with Father Tim Grumbach. The following week will be peace, joy, and love. We'll walk through all of those themes. But I want to break down a little bit of the tradition as well as the meaning of all of the symbols that we have, from the evergreen uh, to some of the candles, the number of candles, the shape of things. So let's start with understanding that Jesus Christ is the light of the world, and He dispels the darkness of sin. So just by using those candles, we are marking through the light of the candle the light that christ brings into the world the spark that he brings to the world and we read in john chapter 8 that jesus christ is the light of the world and he says i am the light of the world whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life now the advent wreath helps us in that transition and that development throughout salvation history to the coming of Christ and understand that we too are the light of the world. And so as we look at this Advent wreath, let's talk about the shape a little bit. It's a circle, right? The circle is a representation of a reminder that we're made for eternal life and that that's possible through the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a circle without beginning or without end, uh, which God is, right, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end for all of us. And so this shape of the circle of eternal life with no beginning or end symbolizes God's total unending and unconditional love for us. And it represents the sending of His Son to redeem us from the curse of sin. Now, we also have four candles, which we'll talk a little bit more about the candles in just a moment. But the four candles, traditionally, um, the idea is that these four candles, each candle represents 1,000 years. And four candles put together would be 4,000 years that symbolize the amount of time that humanity waited for the world's savior from Adam and Eve to Jesus Christ. Really neat. There's so many symbols in the Advent wreath that you can break down and talk to your kids about. That help us to dive into salvation's history. Now, some people will also add a fifth candle. We didn't grow, do this growing up but I would see it sometimes and you add that white candle right to the middle of your advent wreath you can use a pillar candle whatever you want you know you can just it's supposed to be white and that symbolizes uh Christ and it can be burnt on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day if you want to add that in I know I I was always just excited once we had four candles lit and you had all the wax running everywhere and by the way I always buy my backup candles cuz you need more than four candles to make it through if you're lighting them for every, let's say, dinner each night in Advent. So a Catholic company has a really great um, bulk uh, option for buying those Advent candles. Then the colors of the Advent candles also matter. So we have that violet, that purple color that is a liturgical color that we're all familiar with. It's used to signify a time of prayer, penance, and sacrifice. That's why it's used both during Lent as well as Advent. It's a symbol of a penitential time, but we also have been discussing how Advent is a time of preparation. So that penance, that prayer, and that sacrifice is meant to orient us to preparing ourselves for the coming of Christ. That celebration at Christmas, the coming of Christ when we meet Him at our death and our judgment, and as I always say, receiving Him in the Eucharist whether that's this Sunday, or maybe you make it to daily mass, that preparation, that's why we do these penances, so that we can attach ourselves to God in love and detach ourselves away from those things that get in the way of that relationship. Now, the candles, as I mentioned before, each have a theme. Uh, Traditionally, we know the first candle represents hope, which we talked about yesterday on the trending, peace, joy, and love. Another neat thing that we can see, um, and I didn't really... um, know this particular part. I was looking at CatholicCompany.com and the explanation of the Advent wreath, and actually there are themes to some of these candles. So that first Sunday of Advent, that candle representing the prophet's candle, all the prophets that came and prophesied about the coming of Jesus Christ. That second candle uh, representing peace uh, symbolizes faith within Bethlehem. Uh, You also have the third candle being the shepherd's candle, uh, reminding us of the joy the the world experiences by Christ's coming. And then that fourth candle, the angel's candle, representing the peace on earth that is brought through the coming of Christ. And so enjoy your Advent wreath. I'll share a little more of the neat elements of the Advent wreath tomorrow on Trending as we continue to unpack Advent this season. This is Timmy from Trending with Timmy. It's Gentleman's Hour Wednesday on Trending, and we're going to talk about how men are wired and how to accept the differences built into the blueprint of who men are and how God intended them to be. We'll talk about how to foster and accept these differences in men. Also, we'll dive into the coddling of the American mind and why we should actually be thinking about death this Advent as we prepare for Christmas. So join me Wednesday for our weekly Gentleman's Hour, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.